Welcome to The Sleep Edit, a podcast devoted to helping tired kids and parents sleep better. We focus on actionable, evidence-based sleep advice so everyone in your home can sleep through the night. Now, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast and any associated video content are at the user's own risk. The content on this show is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay obtaining medical help for any medical condition they have or that their children may have. They should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Nothing stated here reflects the views of our employers or the employees of our guests. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Sleep Edit. I'm Dr. Kenna Perry. I'm a pediatric sleep expert and author. This is the second part of the episode with Ariel Greenleaf, my friend, the very wise sleep consultant about the important topic of how to get your child to sleep through the night. In the first episode, we discussed the definition of sleeping through the night and what you expect at different ages, sleep onset association disorder, which is the problem that we are generally trying to treat with any sort of behavioral sleep intervention, how having the wrong bedtime can wake your baby up during the night, and medical problems that wake your child up during the night. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, I suggest you go back and listen to that one first before continuing with this episode. Craig, um, I have a question for you. Sure. What percentage of children have actual medical problems? And then what percentage of normally developing healthy children have need some sort of a behavioral intervention? The first one was what percentage of children presenting have actual medical problems? And it's a really good question, right? Because I could tell you like one of three percent of children will have sleep apnea, right? If they're obese and they snore, it's closer to 50%. All comers like presenting to the sleep lab, I'm not sure if anyone has those numbers, but what we say in the in sleep world is a lot of these problems are multifactorial. And that's just a fancy way of saying there's actually more than one cause. Mm. In medicine, we love Occam's razor. We're like, it's the most, which is just stating that the simplest single explanation is the cause of what's going on. But really, as one of my mentors used to say, the patient can have as many problems as they damn well please. So don't get hung up on that there has to be just one explanation. Though often, usually there is. Most children are pretty healthy. And sorry, what was the second part of your question? I guess the second part of my question is, there's, there's, having been in this industry for almost a decade and seeing such a rise in the industry and a need for sleep support, behavioral, non-medical, I'm wondering what percentage of the average developing child in the United States need some sort of, or maybe it's the parents. Maybe the question is, do you think it would be beneficial for parents to have more of an understanding of how to handle sleep to avoid things spiraling out of control 
because I feel like there's a surge in the need for behavioral sleep specialists like myself. I would agree. And there's a lot of different studies that have looked at this, but I've seen anywhere between 20 and 50% of parents being concerned enough to talk to their child's pediatrician at some point during their childhood about their child's sleep. Yeah. So you think about it, that's a huge number of people. And in some ways, there's more information available, but I feel like there's also a lot, the amount, the quality of information coming in is less, right? Like it's harder for parents to know what's, what's good information and what's not. That's why I started writing online. Oh, that's why you do some of your work too, is there's a lot of misinformation. Look, anybody's promising a quick fix or their own technique that they invented or their own terminology, which we see a lot online with things like wake windows, which I'm not even going to get into right now, which isn't based a lot in sort of science. Before we get sidetracked on one of my favorite hobby courses of all these weird stuff that goes on, I just want to make sure we cover a couple of other sure, potential causes of nighttime awakening. Yep. So nighttime feeding and learned hunger. What's your, what's your take on this? Oh gosh, I feel... So I always like to say, I am not, if a sleep consultant starts working with someone and says without any digging, we're going to eliminate all feedings overnight really fast. We're just going to take them all away. Run for your life. It is not my job to determine whether your child needs a feeding overnight. Now, that being said, if your child is normally developing, there are no health issues, and say this that you got a seven-month-old baby and they're waking every hour and a half to eat, we got to look at that because there's really no need for a seven-month-old to be waking up and eating every hour and a half. And I think that comes back to what we were talking about with learning how to fall asleep independently. In many cases, we see that those children are falling asleep on the bottle or on the boob, nursing to sleep. And when they wake up, that's the way they're falling back asleep. I do also think they talk about learned hunger. I always try to equate it. I think it's important for parents to understand that we have all these terms, but what does that mean? So I see it as this. I got hungry for lunch at 11 a.m. today. Normally I eat at midnight or at noon. And today I was hungry at 11 and then tomorrow, oh, I'm hungry at 11 again. And then the next day, and so I, I eat and, I, and then I'm hungry at 11 again. It's very similar to a child that maybe doesn't even need a feeding, but they're waking up and their metabolism, they get fed and then their metabolism's, oh, okay, that, that was nice. Maybe I am hungry at 11 a.m. every day or 11 p.m. every night. I think it's for my, what part of my job is, first of all, I want to know what the pediatrician has to say. If you're working with lact a lactation consultant, I want to know what they have to say. I think it's also important to look at how much are they getting throughout the day? Because in many cases, feeding is another area where parents often don't know what's going on. Like they'll ask the pediatrician, the pediatrician will give them a handout. Not all pediatricians, but some, well, this is how you're supposed to feed your baby. And a lot of times, I have clients that are switching from breastfeeding to formula or vice versa, and not usually vice versa, but usually it's breastfeeding to formula. And it, it's important for parents to understand that's not a one-to-one -one ratio. So of an average 
bottle size for a breastfed baby is four ounces, but that's really three quarters or a half of what a formula fed baby bottle is going to look like. And they get confused and then the baby really is hungry overnight. So looking at how many feeding sessions, how many ounces, things like that, let's ensure that this baby is getting fed throughout the day. And if they are, and they're normally developing in other ways, we can look at ways to at least get down to one feeding, something like that. I'd love to hear what you think about that in general. Sure. Sure. I think that, I think a couple of things. First of all, it is certainly, it's trickier with moms that are breastfeeding, especially if they're breastfeeding exclusively, because the breast is such a powerful, so soothing, right? There's a lot of dimensions to breastfeeding because a lot of times, the, and I tend to see kids that are older, right? So someone's like nursing their child, they have no milk supply, they're nursing their child, they're five times a night. It's not a nutritional problem at all. Right. It, what they are providing there is physical contact and comfort. And you don't need to worry about weaning those calories there. I'd say that certainly with a child that is growing well and moving along their growth curve, a lot of parents who are breastfeeding, especially the moms are back to working full time. They're happy to nurse once during the night. And that's sustainable and it, it helps them maintain their milk supply. So I don't really rush people to get rid of that if they're happy with how things are going. In my world, a lot of times I am seeing older kids, they're nursing, they're drinking bottles, they're drinking, they're drinking juice during the night, and they are obese. So I'd say as a rule of thumb, honestly, a normally growing child over a year of age does not really need those calories in them. And if you find that you are needing to give milk or anything else during the night, you I give you permission to cut it out. And you may want to wean it slowly. That's what Ferber talks about in his book. And I've had good luck with that. Other parents have wanted to just, you know, they don't want to be like measuring out different aliquots of milk during the night and they just want to go cold turkey again. It may be a little bit more, a little bit more conflict, but it could be the right fit. But again, this is why you have to work with your pediatrician. Because I think it's very hard to sort this in the first six months of life. In the six to 12 months, it's a little bit easier, but it's not a slam dunk that you can necessarily just get rid of this. After a year, honestly, if you don't want to do it anymore, you don't have to do it anymore. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. And I think what, but yes, and I think that it's another area where education is needed for parents because the switch from nursing all day or giving formula all day to solids is a strange one. Nobody really guides you through that. And a lot of what I find is parents are concerned that their child is not getting enough milk and they think that it's still this mandatory thing that they get 24 ounces of milk every day. So they're like, the only time he will take a bottle is at bedtime and the middle of the night and as soon as he wakes up. So they're like very concerned about that piece. So I feel like that's where more education might be needed so that parents can understand a healthy, normally developing toddler does not need that, <laughs> does not need that. No. And I also think it's important to note that toddlers grow, that their growth is so much slower than an infant from birth to age 12 months. It slows down exponentially compared to an infant, a child who's born at five pounds and by 12 months, they're 20 pounds or 25 pounds. That's a huge growth and they need lots of 
breast milk and formula, but as they get into toddlers, they become pickier and they don't need, they're not gaining 20 pounds the second year of no. life. And so no, hopefully not. No. Yeah. Hopefully not. And so I've had actually Dr. Porto was one of those people that, that I've talked about this with. And, and just Anthony Porto, who I work with at Yale, who's a pediatric GI doctor who's written a wonderful book on unfeeding in, on feeding in children. Yes. He's I, I don't remember the title of it, but I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's, oh man. Guide to Feeding or something? The Pediatrician's Guide to Feeding Babies and Toddlers. Yeah, we can put that in the notes. But point being is, I've had my own pediatrician say this. I heard, I've talked to Dr. Fordow about this. And toddlers, it's like, parents will be like, they only ate a handful of this and a handful of that. And basically that's normal for toddlers. It's normal for them. Like basically if they have an one good meal in 36 hours, you're doing just fine. So understanding yeah, that is important. Everybody thinks they're a feeding genius with their like 10 month old be like, Oh, look, he eats avocados. Oh, <laughs> and then a year later and you're like, you're just like, screw it. Let's just give him chicken nuggets again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the toddler diet. It's just, it's all tan, right? Yeah, yeah. French fries. Chicken nuggets. Nothing I don't know. That, that's it, basically. <laughs> yeah. Don't. It is what it is. Yeah. Don't judge anyone until you've been there yourself. Right. <laughs> oh man, you could do a whole show about things I never thought I would do as a parent. Oh yeah. Yes, just feeding my child salami from the from the bag. Yeah, for sure. Dinner. Yeah, sure. Here, take the bag. Take the bag for yeah. yourself. Walk away with it. Throw it on the floor. That's fine. But to distract it for a little bit. So I. I wanted to talk a little bit about adjustment issues. I don't know if this is a terminology that is used a lot in in, in your practice. Adjustment issues with regard to changes in life or exactly. changes in, for instance, transitioning from the crib to the toddler bed or adding a sibling. So I'd say that adjustment insomnia, there is a technical definition. It's less than it's this than 30 days of disruption of sleep. When there's a major life change. So sure. you mentioned a big one, new baby in the home, moving to a new home is one. Certainly it can be things like if parents separate is, is one. And that it tends to be a little bit more complicated to unravel or deal with, obviously, because it's, it's, it's an ongoing stressor for children. A lot of the times for most of these things that are not as significant a life change, like again, having a new sibling is a big deal, but children tend to habituate it pretty quickly. I think the key is with a lot of these is making sure that your child is getting more attention during the day to support them to these changes because otherwise they are going to be looking for that attention during the night. Yes. And it is okay to give that to them during the night. One thing I will say that parents I think worry about too much is a new baby or another child disrupting their children's sleep. In my experience, if a two-year-old is sleeping well when the baby is born, that when that when the baby is crying, they're probably going to sleep through it a lot of the time. It's less of an issue that parents think it is because parents worry about things like sharing rooms. If your kids have to, I wrote an article in the New York Times. Like if your kids have to share a room or you want them to share a room, it's fine. That's really until very recently, it was unusual for children to have their own rooms. It's a luxury, right, for that to happen. Yeah. So I I'd think... say, no, I was going to say if you've got these big changes on the horizon. Don't be surprised if there's a little bit of disruption, but it shouldn't really last that long. Yes. And I wholeheartedly agree with more attention during the day. You mentioned the sibling thing, and I find you're absolutely right with 
they're always worried that the crying is going to wake up the older sibling. But I find that the bigger issue that I see is a little bit of jealousy because the older child wants to be sleeping in the room as the same room as the baby. Why does baby get to sleep in the room, but I don't? And so having, I with the sibling thing, I always try to encourage, make sure the child is getting a little bit of extra attention from one or both of the parents during the day where it's one-on-one. It's not, there's if you can, obviously this isn't always doable, but one-on-one attention, even if it's 15 minutes at the playground or something just quick, but it's meaningful that's important. But I also find that playing up the role of being sibling and making it an exciting thing and giving the child a job to help you. Oh, you're helping. Could you go grab me those diapers? That's so helpful. You're helping. What a great big sibling you are. Like involving them in the daily mundane things that seem like nothing, that can make a huge difference. And I agree with you that it if, if you start to the child just want to, wants to feel included and as though they're still important. So making sure you've got that and, and reestablishing that if needed, that should help with overnight. Yeah. I think the best single piece of advice I got when I had young children was give your child a job. Yeah. Like in any situation, like when they are bored they will do some, they will give themselves a job and it is often a job that you wish they did not have. <laughs> yeah, sure. I don't know. I, 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 perhaps I'm hallucinating, but I feel like my younger brother stuck pieces of cheese in the VCR <laughs> back when VCRs were things that people had. <laughs> oh. I was trying to think of an analogous. I'm like CD player. I'm like, I'm really dating DVD myself player. DVD. Yeah. DVD. Yeah. So, Kids these days, even the parents these days are less familiar with some of these that's ancient right. technologies. So let's talk about nighttime fears. That's a, that's another one that can some often is more emergent at bedtime, but can also emerge during the night. Well, how often when we are you seeing nighttime fears or dealing with them? I don't really see a lot of nighttime fears. I do. I think that sometimes children want to name a reason why they feel they need the assistance of their parents. So they may say, I'm scared of something so silly, like lobsters. I'm scared of lobsters. That's okay. We know that there are going to be lobsters in the bedroom, but they, they, it's like, why are you calling me in here? What is the reason? And I think that a lot of times they can't name what the fear is. And if you look at child development, around that toddler age, that three-year-old, four-year-old thing, their biggest fear is really being separated from their parents. So reassuring them that you're going to be there. I love using things like a bedtime book that you make with the child that has real photos of you sleeping in your bed, the child sleeping in their bed, nothing going on overnight, everyone waking up happy, from their own bed and doing that repetitively. I think it's almost, there's a lot of FOMO going on at this age. And, but with regard to fears, I know you're not a huge fan of monster spray. I like to use it as like safe sleep spray or happy sleep spray. Um, Why don't you just explain what that is? So, that's like, yeah. Um... So like, ha- so monster spray is no, you basically fill up a jug of spray bottle with water and you say, spray this to keep the monsters away. We don't want to really feed into 
their whole belief that there's a monster in the room. Although I will find this, I do find some children want it to be that way versus this is just for happy sleep. They like having control over their fear. So I'm spraying this and I'm keeping away the lobsters. Okay, great. But it, for other children, it's just... I mean, here, here's the thing about that spray. It totally works. You start spraying this stuff around, 100% guarantee no, no lobsters. No lobsters. No lobsters in the room. Yeah. So it totally does work. It works. And then... I'm just, but, I'm just imagining the bedtime book and then they're flipping through and all of it, there's a picture of the child sleeping lobster. and then a picture of the child with a lobster, like a lobster on top of them. Oh, gosh. Like, don't do this at all, kids. I mean, it, it, it would be funny, but don't traumatize your kids. No. Yeah. And then the flip side is instead of like playing up the idea that these fears are real, just using the sleep spray to spray the room and say, this is for, this is hair, happy fairy sleep spray or something like that. That can be helpful for some children. It, in, these tactics don't work for everybody, but those are certainly some of the things that I utilize with my toddler and preschool clients. A lot of the time when you can present a couple of these options to parents and they have a feel for what's going to work with their kids. Absolutely. Like, like one thing I like for this is a huggy puppy, which is a, it's an intervention where you give a child a stuffed animal. There's a story that goes with it about how this is a lonely puppy and he's a little bit scared. So can you take him and have him stay with you and comfort him at night? And they found that children, even children who've experienced real trauma, this is and I'll put a pin on that for a second, it was very helpful with them sleeping through the night and then helping somebody else made them feel braver. But there are some kids, this works great for a kid that likes stuffed animals. I've had some parents be like, yeah, my kid doesn't want to sleep with a stuffed animal. She doesn't like stuffed animals. This is not going to work for them. And I would say as just to come back to the trauma aspect, we know that people have experienced trauma in their lives. And unfortunately, it's common in the US, it's common in other parts of the world it can manifest the significant sleep difficulties. And sometimes it's a very clear trauma, like a child being in a car accident. I'm not going to repeat some of the stories I've had the children have told me that are surprising and really terrible things, the witnessing terrible things. And sometimes it's something like a near-miss car accident where nothing bad happened, but they can't stop thinking about it. And I say in a situation like that, if a child is referencing something in their experience that happened to them or even something they heard about having another family member, usually to unpack that, you really need some professional help for that. That's not something you tackle on your own. So in that scenario, again, I don't want parents to be like, oh, my kid's waking up at night. I they, I'm worried that there's something hidden as horrible has happened to them. You almost always know what this event was and older kids are going to be telling you about it. This is really an opportunity to work with your pediatrician and a mental health provider to unpack that sort of stuff. That is not, I'm not a psychiatrist. I have a psychologist that I work with. It's not really, even a primary care doctor or sleep consultant, this is not in their wheelhouse um, to, to deal with those sorts of things. Agreed. So I think we have two more on our list. One is, one is environmental causes. These are slam dunks if you can find them. Like in environmental causes of nighttime awakening. Well, environmental causes, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I remember working one time with this family and it was twin nine-year-old girls and a five-year-old girl. And they all ended up in bed with their parents, all of them, every night since the nine-year-olds were born. They all ended up in their parents' bed by the end of the night. And 
I went, I actually went into their house. I don't do that frequently, but I did. And we sat in the bedroom where the two older siblings shared, they were twins. They shared a room. And I said, what in here bothers you? What, if we're shutting the lights off, we're getting ready for bed. Is there anything in here that bothers you? And she said, yeah, that doll is always staring at me. And the mom said, you never, ever told me that. And she said, yeah, it freaks me out. And I said, okay, we can remove the doll. And she said, and I don't like it when the light is on in the closet and the door is slightly ajar. And she's like, why haven't you ever said that or changed it? And she said, I don't know. I guess I never really thought about it. Now she's a lot older, so she's nine and she can tell us that. I think there are things that, that bother us and then bother children. And we need to be looking at that. And I also think, so for Light is an interesting thing because a lot of times we're like, don't bother with a nightlight when they're little, like babies. You don't need to worry about it. They're not afraid of dark at that age. But I think that some children do get afraid of the dark as they get older and adding the nightlight can be a game changer. Others, they don't like the light at all. They don't want to see shadows. So that's certainly something you can control. But what would you, what other things do you think about? I just have a question about this doll. Was it like oh. that creepy clown doll in Poltergeist? Honestly, yeah, that, <laughs> that's that thing out of the room. It was like an older, I think it was like the mom's doll. It was a, definitely an older doll that looked a little creepy. <laughs> was it Annabelle from the, no, the, or the Conjuring? Close, close. Or something like that? No, um, and my daughter yeah, has this stuffed unicorn. It was, it was big saw from the Saw movies. Yeah, my daughter has this unicorn that has big eyes. And she's this doll, this unicorn just staring at me all night. I'm like, let's get rid of it. If it's bothering you, why are you keeping it in here? Yeah, no, I think, look, technology is a big one, right? Don't have televisions, smartphones, tablets in your kid's room. No, no, look, no matter what, right? This Most of the people listening to this probably have younger kids, but don't start. If there's a sibling in the room, do the, does the sibling snore? I've had kids coming to see me and they're like, oh yeah, my sibling is up snoring all night. You're like, really, it's the sibling that needs to come to see me for their sleep apnea. The neighbors, right? Like a lot of, I live in the suburbs, but a lot of people live in cities and they live in apartments with thin walls. So the neighbors get up at a certain time. The trash collection comes at a certain time. Things like sound masking, like with a sound machine can be helpful. Again, don't put it near your kid's ear, but like running a fan can help mask some of those signs. Blackout curtains are great. Mm -hmm. And one thing I want to say too is I see some kids who have problems, they have sensory disorders. They're common in children with autism, but also in children without autism where say certain tags on their clothes will bother them. They're very finicky. They have to have certain socks without seams, et cetera. And sometimes those children will actually respond well to, if they like to be wrapped up tightly, I like a, a Lycra sheet which is like a sheet that will wrap around the child's mattress like a sock and they will slide into it. I'd say this is clearly not for an infant right. or a young toddler, but for an older kid, that can be very helpful. And really for me, those kids, I'm showing them a picture in, this, in, the, in the clinic. Does this look comfortable to you? And they're like, oh yeah, I'd like to try that. It's 20 bucks. Whereas a good weighted blanket, honestly, what, I like weighted... You get the same benefit as a weighted blanket, but weighted blankets are hot, so they don't work well in the summertime, and they're expensive. They're very expensive. And they fall yeah. your, your, like they fall right off. Also, if your kid really is having a lot of sensory issues, struggles, loud noises bothering them, et cetera, working with an occupational therapist can actually be game changing. 
So I think that's an important thing to, to think about. And then our last cause we're going to talk about is something called too much time in bed syndrome. So this term comes from a sleep psychologist named Brett Kuhn, who works out in Nebraska. He's written a lot of, done a lot of good work in the sleep behavioral sleep space. And this is where parents are having their child in bed for a period of time that is too long for their sleep needs. So you mentioned like Mark Weisbuth, like he likes early bedtimes, which really do work well for some kids. But we know that as you get older, your sleep needs reduce. So if you had a one-year-old that was sleeping great from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., so they're sleeping 12 hours a night, everybody's high-fiving and singing kumbaya, like mission accomplished, right? And then all of a sudden at age three or four, the parents have kept the same schedule and this kid will start waking up in the middle of the night for an hour or two, quietly playing in the room. Not that quiet because the parents are waking up and calling me about it. But they're, and the key with this condition is the sleep opportunity is on the long side for their age and their bedtime is good. They're falling asleep independently and they're not necessarily going to get the parents at night. They're just playing in the room quietly because the problem is not that they can't fall asleep on their own. The problem is they just have insufficient sleep. So another way this can manifest is when children are getting to the age when they're ready to drop a nap. So like you have a three-year-old and all of a sudden when they take a nap at daycare, they're falling asleep at 10 o'clock at night after three hours of arguing with their parents. And on the weekends, they refuse to nap and they're falling asleep at seven or eight o'clock. And that is often a signal that it is time for that child to drop the nap. And again, naps are a whole other domain of agony <laughs> to talk about yeah. because if you think bedtime, if you think nighttime is tough, nap time is like the wild west for lots of different reasons. But I know what are your, what's your take on this and the kids that like, there's a disconnect between how much time they're spending in bed and how much time they really need, how I, much sleep they really need. Sure. I think it's interesting because you mentioned earlier that you don't tend to work with infants. And a lot of the people that I see are on the younger side. I definitely see the older side and I 100% agree with you about the dropping of the nap. It gets so frustrating because we're so limited with childcare, daycare centers. You know that this child needs to drop this nap. It's affecting their nighttime. It's affecting the parents' nighttime. The whole family is suffering but the daycare center can't accommodate dropping the nap because they don't have anybody to actually watch the kids that don't nap. It's a very tricky situation and frustrating. And as a working parent, I understand that frustration, but it's frustrating when I get a client like that, that they can't control what's happening during the day because it absolutely, you're absolutely right. They max out on their sleep. They no longer need a two-hour nap and a 12-hour night. They might need a 10-hour day total, and that's okay, and they're doing just fine with it, but you sometimes you can't control that in today's society. But I see that a lot and absolutely agree with you. That's a sign that it's time to drop the nap. We either see it, I usually see it either at bedtime, the kid naps, bedtime's a disaster, or on the other end, kid naps, falls asleep just fine, but is up at four in the morning suddenly and can't go back to sleep. With infants, I find that the opposite is often true. Parents don't know a lot of times how just how much sleep 
infants need and just how important an age-appropriate schedule is. And so I'll get parents that they want to take their children out until 11 p.m. and they don't understand why this isn't working for their child. And and you explain that infants need 12 to 16 hours of sleep in a 24-hour period. But that, again, goes back to what you're talking about because for a 12-hour total sleeper, you're looking at that includes naps. So the baby might be sleeping two hours total with naps during the day. And they're only going to sleep only 10 hours overnight. Whereas the child, the baby that needs 16 hours of sleep is getting four hours of sleep during the day and 12 hours overnight. And going back to wake windows, those wake windows are wildly different. You're looking at 12 hours of awake time versus eight hours of awake time during the day. And that's a big variance. So I see, I definitely agree with the too much time in bed and having the over expectation that your child should be sleeping way more. But I also see on the other end that parents just don't know how much sleep their child should be getting and what does a restorative nap look like? How long should that be in order to keep them well rested throughout the day and get them to a bedtime? But the parents also often want a bedtime that is too late for their child. And that then comes yeah, so, because so one so both parents can see them when they get home and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah no, this is so very this is valuable to me because the nature of my practice is we have a long wait list and we see a lot of medically complex children. So when people come to see me, they've been struggling for a while. And and I'd say my clinic population is enriched for kids who have some layer of medical complexity here. But it is so that first year is so hard. And it's really hard to make blanket recommendations. Um, we're going to put in the show notes the link to the the normal sleep ranges for age. But with babies, it's a huge it's a huge range of normal. What we do know is kids who are high sleep need in infancy, they're going to be higher sleep needs throughout childhood. And a lot of times, honestly, you're talking about the population of people who kids have high sleep needs and the parents are struggling. In my experience, a lot of the times, especially if it's a first kid, those parents feel like they're geniuses, right? They figured it out. All their friends are hysterical and they're like, I don't know, my kid sleeps great no matter what I do. But then if they have if they have a second kid and that kid cannot just nap ad lib and they have to pick take that kid out of the crib to pick up the other kid at preschool, then things fall apart. My older kid was one of those long sleepers and we brought him home from the hospital after four days. And back then... There was not really a recommendation that they stay in the room with you. Mm -hmm. That's like relatively new. He's 16 now because for SIDS prevention. And he slept for eight or nine hours a night, our first night home. And I woke up and I'm like, oh my God, he's dead. Like I I can joke about it now because he was fine, but I just like, I sprinted into his room. Um, So I think to just bring this all together. If we were, if we want to try to generalize this for what are, what are parents, what are the take-homes for parents? I would say that the first thing is make sure there's not a medical problem, right? If your child is not sleeping through the night, meet with the pediatrician, make sure they're growing normally, developing normally. And that any, the common garden variety problems they have like eczema are well addressed, right? I think that's step one, right? Absolutely. Medical, get medical clearance, step one. Absolutely. I think, I think step two is actually getting some data, right? Track your kid's sleep for three days. Again, it's not, you just write it down when they're falling asleep, when they're waking up, note when the awakenings are. 
and look at wh- where their sleep duration is. Are they falling in the middle of that, those sleep needs by age? If that, if not, if they're like way less than it, they probably need more sleep. If they're on the high end or higher, they might actually benefit from a later bedtime or dropping a nap. Again, it's hard to generalize, right? Because we're talking about kids from three or four months of age to, I don't know, age 10 here. Yeah. But really knowing where your child is falling, is your child falling in the normal sleep range or not? That is a really important clue. And I think really working, working towards independent sleep at bedtime. That's it. That's the third step. That's, that is sleep training. Whether yes. your kid is six months age or six years of age, there's a million different ways to do it and we can talk about it. But, and there, I guarantee you there is a technique as a parent that you will feel comfortable doing. If I don't recommend cry it out with a four-year-old, right? But it might work well if you've got a seven-month-old, but it has to feel in accord with your parenting values. I don't know. What am I missing? What are any other big top-line take-homes for people? No, I don't think you're missing anything. I think the independent sleep, first of all, yeah, the medical clearance tracking is really important. And if you're confused about your tracking, talk to your doctor. <laughs> Ask if it's if it looks normal and if it's not, if it doesn't. And then absolutely the next step is figuring out how can I help my baby or child fall asleep without needing me to do something extra. (laughs) And again, we could talk about that. You can talk about that at another time, but that doesn't, again, it does not need to be, you just plop them in the crib and walk out and let them scream. You can be there with the child to help them learn to feel safe and secure there. And then like you had said, once you're able to, once a child is able to fall asleep that way, they're usually going, that's going to overlap throughout the night. And then during the day, it's going, they are going to catch on and realize that they're safe, secure, happy, healthy, all of that, and fall back asleep without much assistance or any assistance. When you think about it as a parent, you help, your children are going to learn to do stuff on their own, right? But you can help them. You can help them. You help them by introducing solids at the right time. You help them... When they're learning to walk, you're like holding their hand. And this is another situation. You are teaching your children an incredibly valuable life skill to be good sleepers, right? I'm always like, some good sleepers are born and others are made. So if you're struggling, let's make your child a good sleeper. So Ariel, anything you want to plug? Anything, where can people find you online? I'm not actively practicing at the moment, but if you want to reach out with me with any questions, concerns, thoughts, or ideas, I can be reached at ariel at arielgreenleaf.com. Okay, we look forward to a bunch of emails now. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, that's fine. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Sleep Edit. You can find transcripts at the web address sleepedit.show. You can also find video of the episodes at that address as well as in my YouTube channel. You can find me at drcraigcanapari.com and on all social media at D-R-C-A-N-A-P-A-R-I. You can find Ariel at Instagram at Ariel underscore Greenleaf. That's A-R-I-E-L-L-E underscore G-R-E-E-N-L-E-A-M. If you like the flavor of the advice here, please check out my book, It's Never Too Late to Sleep Train, The Low-Stress Way to High-Quality Sleep for Babies, Kids, and Parents. It's available wherever fine books are sold. If you found this useful, 
please subscribe at Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. It really helps as we're trying to get the show off the ground. Thanks.